0: Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is former Apple software engineer David Schayer. David, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: For the listeners, David Schayer worked as an Apple software engineer for 18 years. He worked on the Apple Watch, the iPod, and Radar, that's Apple's bug tracking system, amongst other projects. He was an independent software developer for a decade, and clients included Apple, Microsoft, Semantic and the United States Navy. Very cool. I don't think I've ever had, ever had anybody on the show who worked for Apple for as long as you did. That's a remarkable achievement.
1: Oh, I feel like I'm kind of um, mid-level in terms of length. I have some friends at Apple who've been there for 30 years, which is an unbelievable amount of time. And I actually uh, am friends with Chris Espinoza, who was, I think, employee number eight. So he's been there... I think if he hasn't been there 40 years, he's oh, approaching it. So it, it's an unbelievable amount of time. You have to take out – he was a high school kid when he was hired, and he worked when it was Steve and Steve in the garage. So, And you have to take out the time that he left to attend uh, university. <laughs> so four years missing But there. Triple
0: comes to mind, too. He's with, been with Apple for a long time.
1: Yes, and I actually met him because um, he worked on the Apple Watch project for a bit. So that was amazing to meet him. He's a brilliant guy.
0: Well, in part one of the show, I want to ask you about your career, for starters. Uh, What were you thinking about in college?
1: Um, In college? Besides girls. (laughs) Besides girls, yeah. Um, I actually, like a lot of people, I I got interested in programming uh, when I was a teenager. And I got to college and assumed I would study engineering. And then... um, They make you take all kinds of general education classes. And I was like, oh, why do I have to take these other classes? And I actually got interested in them. And, you know, I I liked the classes on history and philosophy and music. And I ended up getting a philosophy degree with a minor in computer science. And I got interested in politics. And I worked at a local uh, student-run business and got interested in all kinds of other things. What was your first program? And then I graduated. The first programming language was BASIC, which I think is what a lot of people started with.
0: Oh, was that on then, an Apple II, or was that on a big machine?
1: Um, it was on a, both. I, I learned BASIC on an Apple II, and um, also the, uh, I got access to a PDP-8 timeshare mini computer oh, yes. um, that my my dad would drive me to this uh, this place. That It was kind of funny. It was a, a local place run by a couple of hippies who thought they were teaching people how to resist the man. Remember, this was in the mid-1970s. And so they were going to teach the world how to program so that we could resist the coming automation. And so I, I loved it because, you know, I was like 14 years old and, and they were teaching me how to program. And they had an old PDP-8 mini computer that they dug up somewhere. They had no money. And so that the local... Um, digital equipment repair man would come around occasionally and kind of lend them a hand helping to fix things when it broke because they could not pay for repairs. Was, that was Apple all...
0: on your radar when you were in college? Since you were using an Apple too, did you fantasize about working for them?
1: Never occurred to me I would work for Apple. That that was that was too far out to even fantasize about. No. I did get a 128K Mac in college and I bought a book on writing programs on the mac because unlike other computers that were command line based and you just you know wrote a program and you know typed stuff out the mac yeah. was all graphical when it was much much harder to program i was amazed at how hard it was to write a simple program on the mac but i went through the the book and learned to do simple mac programming
0: Is that with the apple development system because that was probably the only way to do it except for that pascal app
1: um, I had learned C in college and so I wanted to do it in C and there were several C compilers out and so I bought one of the C compilers. Lightspeed. <laughs> it was not, it was one you've never heard of. It was by oh, two Lord. guys. No, it was called DeSmet, which was the name of one of the guys. Wow. i never
0: heard of that one.
1: Because it was super cheap. It was like $50. <laughs> all the money I had because I was in college. Right. And it was terrible. It had all kinds of bugs. And I remember um, I actually f- figured out at one point that their offices were close to where I lived. And I drove over and told them about some bugs I was having. And it was just two guys like on a card table with folding chairs. And, and they- <laughs>
0: that's the way it was in those days.
1: Yeah. yeah, they fixed the bugs and gave me a new build on a floppy disk as I left the office. and I'm like, wow, this is not a very professional setup. <laughs> so how did you get fired by Apple? So I graduated from college. I have a philosophy degree. and I'm like, what am I going to do now? I was hanging out at a local computer store and the, playing with all the Apple hardware I could not afford. And the guy who worked there said, you know, I heard Apple's hiring. So I drove down there and I applied for a job and they interviewed me and they turned me down. But <laughs> not to be discouraged, I applied again for a different job and got hired. It was just amazing. I have to say, at, at first I was amazed they paid me because I was like, I would do this for free if you let me. But I was smart enough not to say that out loud. <laughs> so
0: what year was this, can I ask? This was
1: 1986. And I I worked for Apple for four years before I left to become an independent Mac developer.
0: 86 to 90 were kind of rough years. 86
1: to 90. Yes, Steve Jobs had just been shown the door. Um, John Scully was uh, showing that he didn't really have the chops to figure out uh, how to build Macs that people liked. Um, And it, it only got worse. I mean... In the in the mid nineties, I actually uh started digging around learning how to program Windows because I thought, you know, if, if Apple goes under, I need to have a skill that I can use to, you know, pay my mortgage. Yeah. It was not fun, but you know, that was being practical.
0: So you went off to become an independent developer in about what, 90?
1: Yes, in nineteen ninety. I had written a program on the side called disk lock, which um, locked your Mac. So basically, when you turned your Mac on, a password dialog came up, and if you didn't type in the password, the Mac wouldn't boot. And it actually worked pretty well. It was fairly hard to get around, and I was getting it published and was starting to make some money from the publisher selling it. And at a certain point, I was basically working two jobs. I'd work full-time at Apple, and then I'd come home, and I'd work till midnight on my own project and work all the weekends and the, the publishing company wanted me to write more software for them. And they said, you have to make a choice. You know, you have to either work for Apple and this is going to be a hobby or you have to quit and, you know, we'll publish your software and you'll, this will be your job. So they enticed me to leave.
0: You wrote some software for some pretty famous companies like Microsoft and Symantec, but I'm curious about what yes. you did for the U S Navy. Tell me, tell me all.
1: Okay, so um, the, the U.S. Navy, by the way, I do not have any kind of security clearance. I was never shown anything that I believe is classified, so I'm not revealing anything secret. Of course course but uh, sometime in the mid 1990s the navy had a missile that they were firing from a jet and the missile was sending telemetry data back to the jet where it was recorded on a hard disk and when the jet landed they take the hard disk back to the lab and they wanted to analyze it in a program like matlab where you can look at all the data the problem is It just wrote the data raw straight to the hard disk. There was no file system. There was no formatting, no partitions or anything. And so if you plugged it in, it was a SCSI disk. So they thought, well, we should use a Mac because Macs had SCSI built in, right? And if you plugged it into a Mac, the Mac said, I don't know what this is. Do you want to format it? Which was not helpful. So whoever was in charge of this at the Navy called Apple and said, can you help? Uh, us and Apple said, no, we don't really do custom software like that. But the guy at Apple knew me and knew that I had been working on disk-related stuff like Disklock, And so they gave him my name, maybe called me up, and I said, sure, that actually doesn't sound very hard because I knew how to uh, read and write to SCSI disks and ended up with a short contract for the Navy to just pull all the data off the disk and put it in a regular file on a regular uh, hard disk so that they could run it into MATLAB.
0: What was it about being an indie developer that kind of got to you eventually and
1: drove you back into the arms of Apple? Um, It was the tech bubble blowing up in uh, 2000. Um, I mean, my company... Started out with just me, you know, and then I got a little more successful, and I hired a friend, and then a couple years later I got a little more successful, hired another friend, and by 2000 I had a a half dozen people working for me, and we were doing pretty well, you know. We'd written some software for Microsoft, and we and then the tech bubble blew up. The dot com bust, I think they call it. That is it, the dot com bust. Yeah, and. All these famous companies like Netscape and Sun, you know, went from, you know, hiring as fast as they can to laying off as fast as they can. And all the contracts I have dried up. And when I started calling people that I used to work with to, you know, see how can I uh, get another contract? Not only did they not answer that, all the people I knew at those companies had all been laid off so it was desolate we had no money coming in and i basically told the guys you know this is it we, we have no money i can't pay you um you should see what you can find out there because we're we're dying and, and at just that point apple decided to start the ipod and i had actually been playing in a poker game at apple for several years um, this is a poker game run by the, some engineers at Apple. And I would go every week. I would lose about 20 bucks and I would keep my ears open because they would talk about all oh, kinds of smart. stuff. You could smart know. and helpful. Oh, yes. It was very helpful because you could ask occasionally, you could ask a little technical question if you're having a problem. And some engineer would say, oh, yeah, that thing doesn't work like it actually says in the documentation. (laughs) Do this thing first. And you'd be like, oh, man, you just saved me three days of work. And one of the guys who played in the poker game occasionally worked in the iTunes team. And so he knew that they were starting a new project to build a music player and that they needed someone who could write the file system for it. And I'd been working on uh, Norton Utilities for Symantec which used to be a huge product and so he knew that i knew my way around file systems and file systems are kind of a specialty like rebuilding a transmission in a car right you wouldn't take it to jiffy lube to get your transmission fixed you would find someone who knew transmissions and file systems are kind of like that in computers what kind of file
0: system did the ipod have was it anything we know of or custom
1: no, no, it, it had standard file system. Initially, it had um, the Mac file system, which at that time was called HFS+. Plus. And then when they added support for Windows, it had the Windows Fat32 file system. Both of those. So I called this guy that um, the iTunes friend told me to call some guy named Tony Fidel, who I'd never heard of before..
0: Oh, ho, 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 ho. Check yeah, that. So-
1: I interviewed with Tony. At this point, Tony was just a first-level manager at Apple, right? He had a dozen guys working for him. He interviewed me, and he said, "Uh, can you write a file system? I said, sure. And he said, you know a lot about file systems. And I said, yeah, I've been working on them for years. I know a lot. At that point, I realized he didn't know anything else about file systems, and so he didn't know what else to ask me because he's an electrical engineer, and he actually was really good at what he did, but this was outside of his expertise. So he said, can you start on Monday? And I said, sure. And I said, what are we doing? And he said, you don't need to know what we're building. You just need to put a file system on it.
0: Normally these days they kind of put you through a test, kind of make you do some real work.
1: Yeah. It was a very unusual interview. Um, basically I got in because the guy from iTunes had recommended me and said, uh, this is the person you should hire. And because File system engineering is kind of a specialty, and it's not like you can just, you know, hire a lot of people who know it. And especially Apple's file system at that time. Remember, Apple was not doing well, so there weren't a lot of people that decided to specialize in Apple's file system. And the iPod was a total rush project. So, you know, a a smart engineer could have figured it out, but they didn't have time for a smart engineer to figure it out. They needed someone who could just dive right in.
0: So you joined the iPod team. What was the first thing that happened? Sort of
1: lay that out for us. So I show up on Monday morning and I'm given an office and there's an HP Windows computer running Windows XP and then spread across the desk is it looks like they had taken another desktop computer and taken it apart and spread the parts all over the place. There's a big circuit board that's like, you know, a foot square. There's a big power supply next to it, powering it. There's a big hard disk next to it, because the tiny little hard disk that they ended up putting in from Toshiba, we didn't have any of those yet. The iPod was powered by an ARM chip, and Apple didn't have any ARM development tools yet. So we were using the ARM development tools that the ARM company sold, and they only ran on Windows or Linux. So we were pretty much the only people at Apple who came in every day and used Windows because the tools we needed ran on Windows. And I worked there for two weeks before I figured out we were building a music player because it was so secret. They're like, you're just writing the <laughs> file system. You need to know what's going to be in the file system.
0: And you needed a database, too. And I think you said in your article, at tidbit, it was SQLite.
1: Yes. So initially, we just used the database code from iTunes and just copied and pa- basically copied and pasted that in. But as we grew, we needed a lot more features. And so we took SQLite. And I was the guy who put that in there, wrote the schema and made it work on the iPod. Well, all, all the Apple products now use SQLite, um, the phone and the iPad. I believe the Apple TV does too. I'm not a hundred percent certain on that.
0: Cool. How long did it take from the time you were hired until the iPod shipped?
1: So that was the crazy part is I was hired like right at the Right around the 4th of July, I remember, because I think the 4th of July holiday was was like, right? Yes, in 2001. And they wanted to ship at the end of the year for Christmas. And this is brand new and a brand new operating system that Apple had never shipped. And this is an insane schedule, right? The first meeting I went to, and they're talking about the schedule shipping by Christmas, and I thought it was a joke, and I was about to laugh, and I realized... (laughs) nobody else is laughing. Mm. Uh, that's what I realized what I had signed up for. We worked like 90 hours a week for the first six months to get that thing out. You know, we were there nights and weekends. They brought in dinner. They brought in lunch every uh, every weekend. Um, it was so secret. We were not allowed to go to the cafeteria together on weekdays for lunch because they didn't want other people at Apple seeing big groups of us eating together and figure out that, oh, there's another project happening with guys we haven't seen before. I wonder what it is. Cool. So they'd say like two or three of you can go to have lunch, but everyone can't walk as a group to get lunch.
0: So did the iPod ship at Christmas? Because I remember I was in the town hall and Steve pulled it out of his pocket. And I thought that was early November
1: of yes. 2001. Yes. They, and early November is pretty late by Apple standards, right? Because Apple likes to announce things like a week after labor day right so that's pretty late and they they didn't ship very many of them for that christmas they shipped you know a few tens of thousands and then the first quarter of 2001 they shipped a few hundred thousand and so i was thinking well this project is cool but it's not going anywhere i better start finding a job that's going to last because i still need to earn some Mm -hmm. money which shows how much I know about oh, what's yeah, going to yeah. be successful. and This is why I don't work in marketing, right? Because I don't know what's going to be successful.
0: Well, we've run out of time in the first half of the show. That's a great story about the iPod. I haven't heard that before. Thanks for sharing that with us. How about oh, you a break? Bet. Folks, I'm, ta- I'm chatting with former software engineer David Scherer. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us.
1: Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO, or you can just enter MacObserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how to's, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John.
0: Thanks. We're back. I'm chatting with former Apple software engineer David Schaeger. So we got to move on. There's a whole lot to talk about. And one of the things that you told me about during the pre show was that with some thoughts about what makes Apple so successful as a company. Tell me more.
1: Yeah, a a lot of the uh, business types um, think that Apple has this uh, unusual structure where it's divided into business units. So there's like one software unit for the whole company, one hardware unit for the whole company, whereas most other companies are divided functionally up by product, right? So like HP would have a laptop division and a desktop division and a printer division. I think that that's part of it, but I think the main thing that makes Apple successful is the way that it designs products. At most large companies, the management doesn't seem to know a whole lot about the products, right? I don't think the CEO of Samsung is familiar with all the phones they ship or all the TVs they ship. Um, but at Apple, the design goes all the way to the top. When I worked on the iPod. The designers would design a new feature and they would come up with, you know, maybe a dozen different ideas on how you could make this new feature work. And then as it went up through management, it it would get cut down. Eventually, go all the way up to Steve and Steve would look at some drawings of how this could work. He would pick a couple of them and say, I like those. And so there'd be some more Designs that expanded on those with more options. And eventually it would get uh, implemented in software and there'd be a you know, prototype kind of alpha version. And that would get shown again up the chain to management, to vice presidents. And eventually Steve would get an iPod with a working copy of it and he would play with it. And he would say, you know, I like this, I don't like that. And all of management is expected to use all the products at Apple, right? Phil Schiller, the head of marketing, you know, has an Apple Watch and uses it every day. You know, he has an Apple TV. And they write bugs. They participate in design reviews. They say, this works well and this doesn't. But the entire company is part of the product design.
0: So tell me about Steve Jobs' involvement in the design of the iPod.
1: Steve was intimately, design, intimately involved in the design. Um, I remember we were trying to add... Uh, uh, feature called voice memos where you could just uh, you know, record sound onto the, into a file on the ipod and we had it working the designers had come up with a system that had three screens so you, it took three clicks to start recording we showed it to steve it all worked we thought it was going to be fine steve came back and he said it's too complicated it shouldn't take three screens to start recording make it simpler and everyone said how can you make it simpler what can you take out and the feature didn't ship that year because Steve was unwilling to ship it like that. He thought it was too hard to use and he was willing to wait a whole year. Cause remember iPods shipped once a year, just like iPhones do. And over that year, the designers figured out how to make it simpler, how to get it down to two screens and two clicks to actually start recording. And clearly the way we did it ultimately was better. And it, it's, Funny, when you look at a design that's really clean, you think, well, that's the obvious way to do it. Nobody put a lot of work into that. That's simple. That's the first way you'd think of. But in reality, when you actually try to design it yourself, usually that's not the first thing you think of. But Steve was good enough at design that he would look at it and he would say, I don't know what the right way is, but that's not it. So Hmm. come back with something better. And he was willing to wait a year, not ship a feature for a year until we found something better. And that's unusual. That's another reason Apple puts out better products, in my opinion, is because other companies I've worked for, they simply have a schedule that says, we need this feature in this product. And, you know, if it works, we're going to ship it.
0: I've got a jackpot question for you just thought of. So Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs is not with us anymore. Jonathan Ive is gone. Is there anyone left at Apple who enforces that kind of design aesthetic Makes it stick I don't, with, a, with a vengeance.
1: I don't think there's a single person, but design still goes all the way up to the senior vice presidents. When I worked on the Apple Watch, the vice presidents still looked at the design, they played with all the prototypes, and they had feedback. Um, and not just the vice presidents from the watch group, but vice presidents from the the other groups, too, like marketing and design. So I don't think Tim does that. I've never heard of Tim doing that. I, I could be wrong, obviously. Does Jeff do Williams not. do it? Yes. And Kevin Lynch, who is the vice president under Jeff Williams, he definitely does it. Um, I think Jeff Williams mostly um, is worrying about bigger issues, but he definitely has an Apple Watch. He uses it. He's in charge of it. We should say Jeff Williams is the senior vice president in charge of um, a lot of things at Apple, including the Apple Watch. And so he definitely has feedback on what works and what doesn't and you know things he likes and things he has problems with. And Kevin Lynch, who's the vice president below him, who runs the entire Apple Watch group, he definitely is involved in design and how things should work and what's good enough to ship now and what's not, what needs to be improved. And at another company, you know, if you if you went to Samsung, you know, vice president is probably not involved in you know is this camera good enough to make it into next year's phone or do we need to improve it some more? Right? He's probably worrying about sales numbers.
0: So you promised me some Steve Jobs stories, and you have a couple <laughs> of them I know of. Tell me more.
1: Yeah. So after the iPhone, uh, I'm sorry, the iPod was announced and shipped, um, we'd been working overtime like crazy to get it out the door. And so Apple put on a little celebratory lunch where we could go and have a nice lunch. And Steve stood up afterwards and congratulated us all for the work we'd done. And my boss was there. And he told me beforehand that the iPod was just going into production. The production lines were starting up in Taiwan. And if they had any problems, he had to be available on the phone in case something happened. And so you know, he, he didn't expect this, but he might get a call in the middle, and he couldn't wait until after lunch. And so Steve is speaking at this this formal lunch with you know 50 people in it Uh my boss's cell phone rings Uh he picks up the phone steve stops talking looks straight at my boss my boss looks at who's calling and he says i can't talk to you right now mom i'll call you back in a minute and he hung up (laughs) and steve steve didn't actually say this but you could see him just looking at him going are you done yet and then steve picked up where he was talking my boss looked like he wanted to crawl under the table and die.
0: Well, at least he didn't throw say, him out of the room.
1: No. It's one of those things where it sounds funny, but at the time, it was horrible. I oh, did not want to be there.
0: Do you have another one?
1: The same boss um, would have to go to Steve with the user interface stuff that we were doing on the iPod pretty much every week. They had a weekly meeting. He would go with several iPods where, he had, where we had uh, written code which demonstrated the new features we were using. And Steve would look at the, what was working, what wasn't, and make comments. And usually my boss would go in and say, this is the new thing we added. We'd like to, to know if this is the right direction, you have any comments on it. But sometimes Steve would get distracted and would just go off in a totally different direction. I remember once, My boss said, Steve started looking at the preferences menu and all the items under the preferences menu. And this had actually been shipping for several years. So we did not think this is what we were going to be rewriting. But Steve got distracted by it. He spent the whole meeting just looking at the preferences menu and saying, This is all wrong. This is hard to understand. It shouldn't work like that. And so my boss comes back from the meeting. And after each meeting with Steve, we're all sitting waiting him to come back to tell us, you know, what are we doing? What What's changed this week? Anything going? but what we
0: did before.
1: <laughs> yes. And, and he comes, my boss comes back and he says, you know the thing we're all waiting for direction on? I have no direction on that. Steve didn't even look at it. But the preferences menu, which we all thought was totally set, that's all being ripped up and you have to write a new one.
0: I wonder and, what Steve Jobs would think of the settings on today's iPhone 12.
1: I better not say anything because, (laughs) as you warned me, this is a G-rated show. But uh, (laughs) I'm glad they put search on the top because sometimes that's the only way I find what I'm looking for. All
0: right. Well, we're starting to run out of time. we got to drop the Steve Jobs stories. And I want to ask you about one other thing, (laughs) Uh, a couple other things, Uh, some really interesting articles that you have written at Tidbits. Let's see if we can get through them in the time we have left. What do you think of uh, Apple moving the Macs to Apple Silicon?
1: I think it sounds like a great idea. Um, Apple is going to probably be able to put out faster Macs for less money, they get better battery life. But the, the main advantage Apple have is they'll be in control of what goes in the SOC, which stands for system on chip. That's the whole, the whole package that includes all the parts. Right now, you know, when Apple puts out a, a laptop or a desktop with an Intel chip, it, it gets whatever Intel put in there, right? If Intel felt like putting in a certain kind of memory controller or a certain kind of I.O. controller, that's what's in there. That's,
0: that, that determines whether we get uh, Dolby Vision or whether we get Thunderbolt 4. Apple has to kind of take other lumps. Huh?
1: Exactly. And if Apple's designing their own chips... Um, Apple can put whatever they want in there. You notice at the last uh, introduction of the iPhone 12, they talked about all these new uh, AI cores they added. And I don't know what they're going to be used for. Hopefully, they're going to make Siri a little better. But that means that the phone now has the ability to do all kinds of natural language and ML processing right on the phone. Now, imagine if your Mac had that capability too. That'd be really cool, right? Apple isn't waiting on someone else to add that. Apple just adds it when it wants to.
0: Okay. So, the next thing on my list we all, from time to time, during a Mac OS upgrade, have had some sort of snafu. The other day, we had the snafu with Apple uh, decertifying the certificate for Hewlett Packard printers.
1: Oh, my and God. I- that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you wrote an article also about why iOS 13 and why Catalina is so buggy. And you had some pretty interesting insights into how Apple software development works.
1: When Apple, uh, Apple does a new operating system every year, and they always schedule too many features with the expectation that engineers are going to work over time to get all the features in. And a few of the features aren't quite going to make it and they're going to get tossed at the last minute. But that's not really the best way to design a a new operating system, right? I mean, if, if you know that you're making everyone work a huge number of hours and some of the features aren't going to work well anyway, you might think maybe we could just cut a few of the features and have people spend more time on the ones that we know are going to ship so they can actually polish them and get them fully debugged. But that's just not the Apple way.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, there's a a bunch of institutional issues that lead to this. I mean, it's happened before, right? This isn't the first time Apple shipped an operating system where people said, hey, that's really pretty buggy. We're not happy with that. And then I won't mention
0: AirDrop. Cough, cough, (laughs) cough.
1: God, AirDrop is let's just say it's unreliable.
0: Although it's working better for me lately.
1: You get the reaction to that, right, which is Craig Federighi, who's the, the head of software, um, gets enough pushback that he says, OK, next year we're going to uh, cut back a little bit on features and we're going to spend extra time cleaning everything up and making sure it's stable. And iOS 14, which you know just came out, seems to be much better, right? It, it, I haven't had serious problems with it. I haven't read about people having serious problems with it. I haven't either. Yeah. So that's great. That question is, how long do they remember that lesson before they start saying, hey, we can add a few more features in here. Let, let's add some more stuff and people just work weekends to get it all going.
0: Sometimes I fantasize that Apple would just kind of stabilize macOS. It's not the kind of thing that needs glitzy new features every year.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, they, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, they, they, they don't think that way, right? They, they think that People buy the product because it does more stuff and they're being competitive with all the other laptops, you know, Windows, Linux, and and with your phone, right? Or your iPad. So they want it to, to be competitive and have more features. And I love the new features when they work, but not when they don't.
0: All right, one more. Wanna talk about DOE iPod or you want to talk about watch faces?
1: Oh I, uh, Either one. How how about watch faces?
0: You wrote a great article on why Apple is not going to allow third-party watch faces. I highlighted it in Particle Debris one Friday, a few weeks ago. But fill us in for those who didn't see that article.
1: So I've been hearing a a lot of people ask when there's going to be third-party watch faces. And I just don't think it's coming. I don't actually have any inside information. Nobody at Apple is feeding me this. So... I could be wrong, but I don't think Apple's ever going to support third-party watch faces. And the main reason is battery life, though. The watch face is what's up most of the time when your watch is running. And Apple spends a tremendous amount of effort trying to make the watch last you know, 18 hours so that it, it doesn't run out of power before you go to bed.
0: Is that why the digital watch faces don't usually have hours, minutes, and seconds ticking off?
1: Right. Or if they do have seconds, you'll notice that when the, when the watch face dims, the seconds stop moving. That's exactly why, because it takes more processing power to update the seconds continuously to do the animation than to not. But so the sweep if, if secondhand a, doesn't
0: seem to be a problem. They're happy with that.
1: Well the sweep second hand is on when the watch face is on full brightness but when it dims the sweep second hand fades out and and that's to uh save power. Oh. So it's not when you just have your hand like just hanging out and you're not looking at the watch and the backlight's not on the sweep second hand is not running. Of course and they they put it – Tremendous amount of effort into making sure those use as little power as possible. The engineers who work on that know a lot about the details of the GPU and about the graphics stack that uh, runs on top of the GPU. And it's information that isn't published, that third-party developers don't have. So third-party developers would have a hard time competing with that in terms of writing uh, watch faces that are as power efficient as the one Apple puts out. And the the other reason I really think is um, Apple has an image problem. Apple thinks that they know what looks best, right? The Apple designers spend a long time tweaking those watch faces and they think they look good. And I know that people who are really into super fancy high-end watches don't always think they look great and they think they can do ones that are better. But Apple is worried that if they allowed third-party watch faces in the Apple Store, there'd be all kinds of crappy-looking ones, and, and they might crash. They just, that would be bad for Apple's image too. They, they might crash, yes. And having a crashed watch face doesn't look good. Mm-mm. But even just having a crappy-looking one, you know that that isn't really well designed. They don't want that to be the front face that some person sees when they see your Apple Watch. They want to see the nice, clean design. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. cool. Well, we are out of time. It's been a great show. Thank you for taking us on a tour of your career at Apple and some of the articles you've written. Thanks for joining me. It's been great.
1: Thank you. I had a great time. I appreciate this.
0: Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they have interesting and polite questions.
1: Um, you can actually send me an email at das at Um I have a Twitter account, but I never tweet. So um, sending me something on Twitter would probably go into the bit bucket. Mm. And I'm not on Facebook, strangely enough. So email's probably the best.
0: All right, great. Well, folks, you've been listening to John Marchalero and former Apple software engineer David Shearer. This has been Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.